amazed at the providence of God and the song selections uh, and where God has my heart and the message on the, in the, on the Sunday mornings uh, very often. This morning is no exception to that. Turn with me this morning in your copy of God's Word to uh, John 11. I did share from this Wednesday night, probably went farther uh, into it than I wanted, but at the same time felt like it was almost a, a 50,000 foot flyover. Uh, in fact, the more I study the passage, um, the more it seems infinitely or inexhaustible uh, in the observations that could be made. But uh, I feel like the Lord has given me some uh, sense, sense uh, of, of, of an overview that I want to share this morning. I, I want to just say something. I, I try to be honest with you always, but uh, I feel particularly the weight of wanting to say this this morning. But there are passages of Scripture that strike me in very unique ways. Uh, sometimes they strike me uh, in a, in a get-in-the-dust sort of way, uh, in a trembling way, and other times they strike me in a soaring way. My heart exalts in the truth there. Uh, this one is one of those that do both. Uh, I am eager and excited to share with you this morning, but I am terrified. Uh, I'm frightened by, by what's revealed in this text of Scripture, even in this event of the raising of Lazarus, and you ought to be. Uh, and that's, that's what's striking for me is that we can read something like this, and because we've heard it so many times, especially those who've grown up in the church, and because we've heard all the Bible stories there's a way that we can read across it and never be moved by it. And that ought to be terrifying, uh, especially in light of what's on display in this particular event in the life of Christ, as John records that. I'm going to pick up reading where Brian left off in verse 17 of chapter 11. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she had heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in that house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I am particularly sensible to the reality that we are utterly and completely depended upon you for understanding this morning. It's always true, but Father, I pray that as I feel it this morning, that everyone in this room would feel it as well. Lord, we are tempted to bring our, our understanding and our knowledge and our wisdom and experience to the text and, and rely upon these things for understanding and clarity. But I realize in my study this week, Father, that these things are futile. They are not the source of our understanding. They may be instrumental. They may be by your providence used to help us understand and to see Christ more clearly. But Father, the root of our seeing you today is you. It is your grace. It is the merit of the suffering of Christ our Lord and Savior just ahead of which these events had taken place. So we yield ourselves to you this morning. Lord, help me in the speaking and in the thinking and the proclamation of the truths of your word. And Father, help those in this room with the, with the hearing and the understanding. Lord, I pray that we understand today not to no end, but to the end that we might behold Christ in his glory. So help us for your own namesake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I just wanted to share a few observations. There are many. In fact, I felt almost selfish for sharing the observations that came to me or became most clear or weighty to me. In some ways, they're summarizations of the entire text. In other ways, they're pointed and detailed. They are not exclusive. You may see many more. In fact, there may be observations to be made that none of us are even aware of at this moment. There may be some day down the road when you're in some particular circumstance that God has providentially brought about that one of the truths of the passage here may land upon you in a weighty way. And you may discover and see something there and be moved by a truth there that all of us are missing completely this morning. 
But these are, these are the ones that struck me this week and have been humbling to me and, and in some ways make my heart rejoice and in other ways make me tremble because I'm realizing that every time I open this book, these same glorious realities are evident, but I am blind and hard-hearted and self-sufficient to the point that I am blinded to these things. And so in that sense, I'm trembling. And as I said, you ought to be because you're no better than I am. You have the same inclinations and tendencies that I do to rely upon your own understanding and your own grasp of things and your own intellect or whatever that may be. You and I are cursed with the same curse, the old man in the flesh who will not relinquish his influence in our lives. And so that's what struck me this week. So I just want to share with you from this text, and I'll point to the verses that I'm drawing this from particularly, but just a few observations. Number one is this, and this may seem obvious to you, and you may even think, well, duh. But here's my first observation. This is true. That's, this is a true declaration of a true event in the life of Jesus Christ. My heart just exploded this week with the weight of that realization. Did I know the scriptures are true? Yes. Would I yield to the fact that the scriptures are God's breathed word? Yes. Would I confess and ascend or accede to all of these conceptual realities that we as Christians say, yes, these are doctrines of the faith. Yes, all of those things. But it struck me this week that this is true. This happened. That God who called into existence all of the universe, brought about circumstances providentially to produce the events that are described and unfolding in history, in time, with real people, and God is here in the spot. It is true. Further, it struck me that whether or not I assent to its truthfulness, or whether I object or reject its truthfulness. Neither of those are any weighed in the balance whatsoever in regards to the authenticity of it. It is true, objectionably, uh, objectively, eternally true, regardless of what you conclude today. And to me, that's powerful. Because it removes me from the judgment seat of the throne of my own life whereby I cast judgment upon the revealed truth of God Almighty. It is true, objectively true, and eternally true. And from all eternity, these events have been unfolding as God has ordained. And here we are in a specific moment in time with the gospel writer revealing to us the events of that moment as truth. Not as myth, not as something made up, but his eyewitness testimony in regards to the events that unfolded here. 2 Timothy 3.16, which was the text for the kids this morning. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. I used a little example this morning. One of your children went home $5 richer this morning because I wanted them to understand that it is profitable 
There is value in the Word of God. And Paul assigns why it is valuable. Number one, it's God-breathed. Number two, it is useful to teach you. The implication means there are things you don't know. Number three, number three, that it is to reprove you. Number four, it is to correct you. And number five, it is to train you in righteousness so that you might be adequate or equipped or complete and equipped for every good work. It's true. It's true. It's not, it's not just a book to offer suggestions in life. It is profitable for all the reasons Paul mentions and a million other reasons. Grounded in the fact is that it is God-breathed, that he carried along the writers in their spirit, even in their selection of the words to describe what the Lord was putting on their hearts. He was superintending the plenary inspiration of the Word of God. So you and I have the book before us, and it is true. Whether you acknowledge it today or not, it is true. I love this verse and it's always caught my attention right ahead of what Isaiah reveals in Isaiah 53. But you, you remember how he begins the passage there? He asks a question. Who has believed our report? It's true. It's, it's a prophecy. He is moved by God to record the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, referring to Jesus. But he begins the description of the suffering servant with, who has believed this? He doesn't question whether or not it's true. The question in his mind is, who has believed the report? The report is true. Who has believed it? And then he adds to that, and to whom has the arm of the Lord, related to the report that he's speaking of, to whom has that arm been revealed? So it's true. No question in Isaiah's mind whatsoever. But it isn't true because Isaiah believes it to be true. It is objectionably, it is objectively true. Maybe object, objectionably for some. But that does not affect the truthfulness of it. In fact, Isaiah says if the truth of it is rejected, it is because they have not believed the report. And if they have not believed the report, it is because the arm of God has not been revealed to them in the report. And, and by the way, the suffering servant. So it's true. In fact, in this very passage in chapter 11, verse 25, after saying, I am the resurrection and the life, what does Jesus say to Martha? Do you believe this? I shared Wednesday night. Jesus doesn't say, Martha, it's dependent on you to believe this for it to be true. He's not saying that at all. He's making the declarative statement. It is true. I am the resurrection and I am the life. The issue before you, Martha, and before every one of you sitting here today is do you believe that? That's the issue. And that's what he's putting to Martha. He's already told her, you'll see the glory of God. He tells her later on, didn't I tell you that if you believe you'll see the glory of God? Your belief is, is, is critical to you being able to behold and see the glory of God here, to see the, what's happening here, the glory of God in these events. But that's the issue about your belief, Martha. But it doesn't change the fact of the realities that are about to unfold. Jesus understood. And I think they were indicative of the far greater reality. Here's my point, one point, single point this morning, first point. This is true. And you and I got to deal with that. 
You can go here and reject every other precept or, uh, or, or concept in all of Scripture, but you're hearing this morning the truth of the Word of God. You can go out and reject that. You can go out and embrace that. You can believe that or cast it off as mere myth. But you've got to deal with it because it is the Word of God, and it is true. It was true. There are many witnesses here. And there's the witness of the Spirit in my heart today. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? What am I going to do with it? See why it makes me terrified? Because it is true. I believe it with all of my heart. But it has implications in my life if it is true. And what am I doing there? That's the trembling. Am I living and thinking and operating in this world according to the reality that I believe here to be true? Is it affecting my life? It makes me tremble. And as I said, it ought to make you tremble. Because I'm pretty sure that nobody in here will stand up and say, I am living appropriately according to the revelation here. If you're being honest, you will be humbled by the revelation here and understand that it is eternally and infinitely true. These are true descriptions and they ought to be having a greater impact in the way that I live and my life and the way that I think about my life. That sat on me this week. I wrote this, as extraordinary as this event is, with all of its profound implications, what is immediately relevant to you this morning is this. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? We could end right here. We could all go home and just ask ourselves throughout the week as a matter of prayer and as a matter of struggling and fighting the flesh, do I believe this? It is true. It is true. Second observation, the death of Lazarus, hear me carefully here, the death of Lazarus is not, is not extraordinary in the sense of its being the common experience of humanity in our sin and in a world under the curse of sin. Genesis 2, 17, in the day you eat shall, thereof you shall surely die. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So if you're in Adam and you are, you will die. Dying for Lazarus is not an extraordinary experience. It is quite ordinary in regards to the fallenness of man. Were we created to die? No, but sin entered in. And from that point to this day, it is ordinary for you to die and sickness to come into your life. This is not an extraordinary death. This is not an extraordinary event in the, to be found as the source of the extraordinariness of it is that Lazarus has died. In fact, it's quite extraordinary that you are alive at the moment. I remember I had a professor at Fruitland that reminded us one morning, he gave this medical research and he he'd kind of cited his sources and different things, but he says, the evidence seems to indicate that your body overnight was producing millions of cancer cells. And the fact that you are not this morning diagnosed with terminal cancer is a healing. It is a miracle that that has not come to pass in your life. Because death is the natural order of things if in this fallen world. It is not extraordinary, please understand me, it is not extraordinary that Lazarus became sick and died. 
Neither is it extraordinary that you and I are sick and often we die as a result of that sickness. It is not extraordinary. Death has entered into this world through sin. I heard it again this week, and please know my heart here. I hear this all the time, particularly at funerals. But be careful about receiving or accepting death as a friend to conclude your suffering in this world. I don't know about you, but I don't find that in Scripture. Death is not my friend. It is an enemy. In fact, Paul says it is the last enemy to be destroyed. It will be, death is not a welcome friend to alleviate the suffering. Paul didn't say, when Paul said, I don't want to be unclothed, he meant, I don't want to be stripped of life. I want death to be swallowed up by life. I don't want to be unclothed, I want to be clothed. But we say things like that that indicate that I'm relieved and death is a welcome friend to unclothe me. That is not biblical. When I go to my grave and, and I'm by my graveside or in my, in my casket and perhaps some of you will be there and come and, 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 and say your goodbyes. Don't dare, don't you dare in the presence of my God say to, say to them that death was a welcome friend for him. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Was I fearful of it? No, because I have been overcome. I am an overcomer. Death has been swallowed up by life. I have been given the victory in Christ in this life by faith. And in that day, in reality, the victory will be mine. But I am not surrendering to death as a welcome friend to ease my suffering in this world. I've got a victory in Christ. That's what makes it a difference. I don't welcome death anytime. When I go to a funeral, it almost there's something in me that makes me angry of the suffering that death has brought into this world. And it also makes me rejoice that this believer had won the victory. And death is not a welcome friend today, but a defeated foe. Oh boy. That's the glory of this gospel. Don't, don't befriend death. That's our problem. We're living in a dead world and we're becoming acquainted and friendly with it. Look at our culture. We're murdering babies by the millions and we're encouraging euthanasia for those who can no longer contribute to society. In every way, coming and going, we seem to be disregarding life and accepting and receiving joyfully death. I don't want to go to my death welcoming that death. I want to go to my death defiant if need be and proclaiming the truth of God and proclaiming that I have won the victory here. You may take my life, but you are contributing to me in the provision of this death because in that death that you think will so hinder me is actually the putting off of the flesh which hinder me from that thing that I desire most which is to glorify my Lord and Savior. Lazarus' death is not extraordinary. His sickness is not extraordinary, no more than yours is today. And some of you may soon develop a sickness, myself included, that results in death. And neither of those will be extraordinary. They are quite ordinary. And so it is in the life of Lazarus. Observation number three. This event speaks of the outcome Notice here, of a specific sickness. 
Did you notice in chapter 11, verse 4, that when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness, this one, don't overlook that. He's not giving Lazarus here a guarantee that no ever no sickness in Lazarus' life is ever going to result and end in death. He's not, that is a true promise in Christ, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying this one, this specific sickness that has been providentially allowed for in the life of Lazarus is not going to have the outcome that you think. But it's a very specific death. Very specific. In fact, Lazarus, the daughter of Jairus, and the young son in the funeral procession would all one day endure a sickness someday that would end in the death of their fleshly bodies. The Lord today may and often does deliver us from disease and from sickness, and our many illnesses do not end in death. Yet someday they will, at least in the sense of putting off this mortal flesh. I've been sick for three weeks, and I'm sick of being sick. But, but this sickness is not unto death. Not this one. But, but since it's not, doesn't mean I conclude that the next one might not be. So something has to happen in here to make me endure sicknesses faithfully to the glory of God all the way until the day that one of those sickness, sicknesses results in, results in death. Be mindful here. Jesus is referring to a specific sickness in the life of Lazarus. And of that sickness, he says, this one does not conclude in death. There's something going to happen here that is extraordinary in the ordinary. It's not going to conclude and end in death. Lending to that as well, observation number four, it is, a, it is a peculiar, these are my words, it is a peculiar expression, therefore, of the love of Christ for Lazarus. This is what struck me as well this week too. In verse three, we're told that the sisters appealed to the Lord on Lazarus' behalf when he was sick because of the Lord's love for him. He whom you love is sick. And later in the verse 5, John testifies in his gospel here as well that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And so I'm thinking to myself, this is a peculiar expression of love. Now, there's a reason that I say that, and it is this. Is it loving then for Christ to call back one who has put off the flesh in its corruption and bound and blindness and has entered into an eternal rest of some sort or bliss, an enjoyment of the fullness of an, under, uh, of an under, uh, unobscured fellowship with his creator. Is, is, creator. Is the love of Christ manifested for Lazarus by calling him back to his former habitation in the body of sin? That's what was striking to me. How many times have you said of a loved one who endured a long suffering here and they're going into the presence of the Lord and, and you grieve in your heart and say, I know I'm going to miss them and I loved them so much and my heart is heavy and I'm, I'm breaking inside, but no way would I ever want to call them out of the joy that they know now. But yet, some people would say that the love of Christ here is manifested in God calling him back from the glories of where he is into the habitation and the limitations of this sinful fleshly body with all of its, all of the curse still affecting it. And they say, oh, how he loved them. In fact, some testify when Jesus weeps there that he is expressing a love for Lazarus. And I think that's probably true, but I'm not sure it's true in the sense that we generally do that. 
I mean, I can understand it. I'm not complaining. I mean, if I had a loved one who was sick and terminally ill and finally they died and, and the Lord came on the scene and raised them to, from the dead, I, I would probably say the same thing. He, man, his love for them was manifested in that he brought them back from the dead and into our presence. And I might even say, oh, how he loves us that he would grant such mercy to us. But I'm not sure that's where the love of Christ here is manifested or where it's rooted. What is the expression of the love of Christ in the raising of Lazarus from the dead? Merely from calling him back to the peace that he knew apart from this sinful body, back to habitate that same body? I'm not sure that I would think of that exclusively at least as an expression of the love of Christ. However, observation number five, I think there is a greater love prevailing here. In verse four, Jesus says, this sickness is not to end in death. Please don't overlook that. He's speaking here of the sickness. He's saying that the conclusion of this sickness is not death. It is rather two things, the glory of God and that the Son of God in the same event might be glorified. That's what he says. And to me, that, if that's the purpose behind this, if that is the conclusion of this, then there must be something involved in that that is a higher expression of the love of Christ than merely to call a man who had, had escaped this fleshly sinful body uh, away and call him back to take up his habitation within it. There is a greater manifestation of the love of Christ on display here. And I say this with all my heart, you better think about that. You better think about that because if your highest joy is, is life and happiness and good health and all those things, then at some point you're going to experience an ordinary death as all fallen men do just like Lazarus. And in that moment, will it be an expression of the love of Christ to bring you back having escaped that death, to bring you back to set you down in the tent that's dead? Will that in that moment be an expression of the love of Christ? Now here's what I'm saying. Is that, is, are we to view the two things as mutually exclusive? Either he raised Lazarus for the glory of God and display his own glory, or he did it because he loved him, which is the, which is the motivation for this. He loved him so much, and because he loved him, he brought him out from the, from the grave and brought him back in the habitation, and that event itself displays the glory of God. But the primary motivation is love. Or we might say, no, the primary motivation is the display of the glory of God. And it just so happens that he has affection and he loves Lazarus. And that, that's instrumental in that, but the primary motivation is the glory of God. What I would suggest to you this morning is that they, are, they need not be distinguished apart from one another. They are both displays of the very thing. The highest display of the love of Christ is to reveal the glory of God and to be glorified in that moment. And you say that it's a little bit hard to follow, Larry. In fact, that's part of my point here is that in this event, love and glory are mingled. In verse 40 through 43, you see that. Jesus says to Martha, did I not, or maybe to all those who stood around, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, this is an interesting 
public prayer. But Jesus opens his eyes and lifts his head, head to the Father and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. There's not a time when you are not hearing me. But because of the people standing around, I said it. Why? So that they may believe that you sent me. Because this is critical to them beholding the glory that is about to be on display. And in, in, in seeing that reality of knowing the fullness of the love of God. These things are together. They are not one or the other. They are both the display of the same realities, which are overall the glory of God. And when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Here's what I wrote in that. I submit this. Uh, Lazarus heard, listen to this, the nature suspending, reversing power of the voice of God. Everybody else around heard the same voice. I mean, it says specifically, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Everybody there heard that. Everybody there saw the direct consequences of that. Everybody that heard him cry out loudly, Lazarus, come forth, were eyewitnesses of Lazarus coming out of the grave, wrapped in grave clothes and ultimately unbound there. A dead man, four days, decay had already set in, comes out of the tomb alive. Everybody heard the voice. Everybody saw the results of that. But let me submit to you this morning one thing. Nobody heard it like Lazarus. He heard it in a very different way. Lazarus is dead. In fact, so such was the voice crying out into the tomb of Lazarus that whenever he said, Lazarus, come forth, all the processes of nature which had already begun the deterioration of the body of Lazarus and the spirit of Lazarus having already departed that body were called into check. Stop! Now reverse that process. Don't bring a path decayed man from the grave, but reverse the natural processes, restore to him health, and bring him out of the grave in the reverse of what he went into the grave or the way he was into the grave. I submit to you that nobody heard that voice. Not in this moment. There were many. In fact, I can prove that by saying some of them believed some of them went and reported it to the Pharisees. Some probably scratched their head and said, what's going on here? We don't have any indication whatsoever that Lazarus had any doubts or complaints about what he had experienced. He heard the voice, the supernatural, sovereign voice of the one who called into existence all that is calling into the darkness of death and calling Lazarus to come forth. I was sharing with Hope this morning the imagery in my mind is of Lazarus in those last moments having believed in Jesus. And death finally comes and all the prayers for his healing are not, not answered and Jesus has delayed. And so he doesn't know what's happening, but he knows death is closing in. And in the moment that death finally comes to take its victim as it were, he loses consciousness and he, as it were, departs from his body and he goes through a long dark tunnel, but he comes out on the other side and there is light and joy and peace and comfort and satisfaction. And he's just seeing and beholding the glory in that presence and all of a sudden through that tunnel comes an echo Lazarus come forth 
And it echoes through that dark tunnel and penetrates into that light. And Lazarus knows in this moment, I've got to leave this place of openness and joy and return to the captivity of a sinful body. I'm convinced that's why Jesus wept. Now I submit to you, is there a greater expression of the love of Christ beheld in that moment than the one that, that, that Lazarus received? Because when he came back to take up dwelling in that fallen flesh, oh, he had the memory of a voice that spoke against death itself. A voice that could reverse the processes of death and bring physical life. How much greater was the power of that voice to preserve life and to bring life eternal and joy. And I'm convinced that Lazarus lived out his days in joy, awaiting the sickness that would come eventually that would result in death in this life, but would release him into the fullness of life in Christ this is why I tremble I like to say things like the Lord spoke to me and the Lord impressed upon me but I think about what Lazarus experienced here and I'm thinking shut your mouth Larry this is being spoken to by the Lord in such a way that it overcomes even the natural processes of death and reverses those and brings you back to take up habitation in this fleshly body to await the day that when you finally put it off. Martha was right. There will be a resurrection in the last day, but that's a different resurrection. When Jesus' body was raised, there were no grave clothes. In fact, the implication is that they were there where they laid him and when his body disintegrated out from those, those grave clothes sunk in. There was no body there and the napkin was removed and folded and laid to the side. Jesus was raised from the dead, but not like, not like, not like Lazarus. Lazarus was called back from the dead and to re-inhabit a sinful body. Jesus put off the body, the fleshly body of this world and took upon himself a resurrection body. That's the day Lazarus is waiting for. and that's the, that's the day you and I are waiting for. So when physical death comes, the only sense in which it is a friend is that it accomplishes the thing for which we are destined for, which is our presence with Jesus Christ. But it is no friend. It is not the intended rescuer of Satan. In fact, it is here to intimidate you and to drive you into fear and despair and to reliance upon your own righteousness. But for the Christian, oh, for the Christian, he meant it for evil, but God means it for good. Yes, death will come to all of us. Everybody in this room, if you're not hurt or killed in some sort of accident, you've got a disease coming. You've got a sickness coming. And many of us, multiple times through the years, God will deliver us from those temporary sicknesses. But I think sometimes, even in regards to my late experience, is in the, in the sickness itself, it's a reminder that there is a sickness coming that does result in the death of this body. But oh, what a promise we have. That we are not victims and recipients of the death as a near and dear friend that ends the suffering, but we are conquerors over that death in Christ Jesus who loves us. That's our observation. Two more real quickly. I can't get past in the context of what I've just said that Jesus into that environment says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what, that's what, I think that's what Lazarus heard. <laughs> no, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. That's resurrection power. 
That's the power that called into existence the universe. That's the power, Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, that shines or speaks into our heart and displays for us the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the resurrection power. That is the voice that brings about rising from the dead. Lazarus got to experience it. Lazarus wasn't lying in the grave somewhere completely dead at that point. He had gone, had already evacuated the body, but so powerful was the command of Christ to call him back that it drew him back from wherever he was through that portal back into the habitation of the human body. But in that same experience, Lazarus also heard the voice of life. Jesus is essentially saying, I am that power. I've demonstrated, I am demonstrating it or going to demonstrate it by calling Lazarus out from the grave and back into this existence. I'm going to demonstrate for you that I am the power of the resurrection. But oh, I'm going to demonstrate to you as well, I am the life. I am the life. And he does exactly that. And that's why I say the expression God's love for Lazarus is manifold, multi-times displayed, multi-times intensified in the experience that Lazarus endured. The sickness, the death that resulted in the fleshly body, the calling him back and the hearing of the voice of God. These were all displays of the glory of God and glorified the Son of God who spoke those words into the grave. But all what Lazarus understood about it all was all oh, the love of God. How unsearchable, how unfathomable are, is the love of God. And I don't know that anybody knew it any more clearly than one who had been dead and had heard that powerful voice call it back to life. And I don't know of anyone who faced death a second time who faced it with more confidence that the same powerful voice would provide for an eternal life. Let me say something this morning. That makes my heart sore. But oh, it makes my heart tremble because that's the power of the one with whom you have to do. And your denial and acceptance of it changes not one iota of that reality. It simply decides upon which side of that you will be. Jesus says, for judgment I am coming to this world so that those who are blind may be made to see. And that those who are see or later profess that they see that while they are blind, these will become blind, more doubly blind as I've been sharing. You and I fall into one of those two categories today, which brings us back to the question, do you believe this? It's true. It's true. Do you believe it? And if you do believe it, how could I tell that in your life? How can you tell it by looking at my life? Is there, is there manifest evidence that you have heard this sort of voice speaking to you? Is your fear of death being removed away from you? Are you less fearful of death and more anticipating the fullness of life waiting you as a Christian? Have you heard the voice that authorizes a faith in a Jesus like that? That's the question before you and I today. Let me say this in closing. It is this same Christ and the same voice speaking to you now. If the Lord is pricking your heart by His Holy Spirit, if the Lord is calling you out, let me just say, it is the same Lord that was calling to Lazarus. It's the same Jesus. 
and the power and the authority and the sovereignty of that same one and the calling of that same one is in effect in whatever he's calling you to right now. Perhaps he's saying, come out of that sin. It's the same authority. It is the same power to bring about that thing. Perhaps he's calling you to believe and to come to faith. It is the same power at work to bring about that reality. Whatever the calling here is, it is the same voice. To me, it's striking because I realize that sometimes the calling I hear is the scriptures, the writing on the page. But messages like this and the prompting of the Holy Spirit get me to understand, but what's written on the page is the voice of Christ. It is the calling of God. And by faith, I believe in the same power that called Lazarus out of the grave is at work to accomplish the thing he's calling me to through the scriptures. Believest thou this? That's the question for Martha. I love it that Martha got to behold the glory of God. She, got, she saw it. She got a brother back. And she might have even walked away and said to herself, oh, how he, he must have loved Lazarus. He doesn't do this to everybody, but he chose Lazarus. And oh, he must love Lazarus. And he must love us because he provided for us our brother back. And I can't help but think that Lazarus was saying, oh, he loves us. Oh, how he loves Lazarus. Far more than you can even understand. In fact, he loves me so much that he called me from the bliss that I enjoyed in the presence of the Father and called, called me back to take up habitation in this body so that I might testify and be a living witness of the power of that voice which I heard and which brought me to life. Oh, how he loves me. That he would choose me an unworthy vessel as one through which such glory would be manifested. This is true. You and I have a decision today in regards to what we believe about what we're hearing this morning from His Word mainly and from the Spirit. But it's true. It's true. Stand with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You that You have reminded me and stirred my heart and humbled me all at the same time by your word. And Lord, I am thankful and excited as well that you assuredly have done that to some here. Lord, it is a good thing and a glorious thing that we rejoice and that we express a joy in the Lord and that we find great confidence and strength and hope in our union with Christ. But Father, it is a, a proper thing that by the very same truths that we are exalted, that we be humbled into the dust. For it is of no value, it is of no, it is of no warrant of our own that this extraordinary blessing is in our lives, but merely due to the display of your own glory in which we perceive and receive the love of Christ from which we can never be separated. In these moments, Father, by your spirit, by the truth of your word, overtake the resistant heart, whether it's the stubbornness of a believer or whether it's the blindness of an unbeliever. Overtake that now by the same power that called Lazarus from the grave. Father, I pray that in Christ would speak into the lives of each of us and that it would produce, manifest itself in a display of his glory in our lives and a conviction of his love for us. We ask 
in Jesus' name, amen.